everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I just want to thank you for tuning back into our series on Revelation. We are so grateful that you are joining us on this journey. Today we are covering chapter 11. And today's episode, I want to give you a fair warning, might be a bit longer because there's just so much to discuss. We're going to cover several things. We're going to cover the Hebrew language as it pertains to the word and name Jerusalem, since the location of today's chapter takes place in Jerusalem, which of course then is naturally going to give way to some insight into Israel, because Israel starts to really come into the picture. Then we'll touch on the temple a little bit, and then these two witnesses who show up, who are prophesying for three and a half years. You know, I don't want to assume anything about any of you out there, what you know or don't know, But it's important either way that we understand why Jerusalem is so important to God. Now, we have a short series called Why Israel that you can find on this podcast that I really encourage you to listen to if you're new to this topic because it explains the land and the location of the land, the significance of that. It explains the covenant and it explains did the church really replace Israel and then more. But it's a great starter series on the topic. But for today, I just want to touch upon Jerusalem. So let's go into that for a moment. And we're going to have to go into the Old Testament for that. And we're going to have to pull up a couple of names that you may or may not be familiar with. Well, the first one is the name Melchizedek. Do you remember when Melchizedek met Abraham after he rescued Lot, bringing bread and wine with him? The symbols we now use for remembering the Lord or communion, right? This story is found in Genesis 14, by the way. His name means king, which is where you get melech. And then the second part of his name means righteousness, which is sedek. So you have my king is righteous or king of righteousness. And so when you put the two words together in Hebrew, it reads as melchizedek. That's why we say melchizedek. Well, actually, one of God's names is also righteousness. When we say Yahweh Sidkenyu, which means God our righteousness. So hold that in your thoughts for just a moment. Now, Melchizedek was king of a place called Salem, which is an early name for Jerusalem, way before David captured it. He is also identified as a priest of the Most High God. He's actually quite mysterious. He has no genealogy he's attached to, and he blesses Abraham as one above Abraham, which is interesting because generally in the Old Testament, the higher always blesses the lower and not the other way around. So who is this man? Well, some believe he is the pre-incarnate Yeshua, and Yeshua is Jesus. Jesus is Yeshua in the Hebrew language. In the Hebrew language, they don't use J's. And that's why Jerusalem is actually pronounced Yerushalayim. And Jesus is actually pronounced Yeshua. And Yeshua means salvation. So Yeshua is identified as a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's found in the book of Hebrews. Neither of them being from the priestly tribe of Levi, yet both are called priests unto God. So whoever Melchizedek actually was, what we do know about him is that he was the king of Salem. Now let's talk about Salem. Salem, or more correctly, Shalem, means many things. And although 
I'm going to read you some of the meanings, some of these words, and it's quite long. It's worth noting for a good reason, as you'll see when we get to the end of the list. So let's look at some of the meanings of shalem. It means complete. It means especially friendly. It means full, just, perfected, just to name a few words. And the root of shalem, that means to be safe in mind, body, or estate. To be complete or to make complete. To make amends. To end. To make to an end. To furnish. To give full. To give again. To make good. To repay. To be at peace. To be peaceable. To be perfect. To make prosperous. To recompense. To render. To make restitution. Restore. And surely reward. This sounds a lot like the fullness of God's salvation, does it not? Every word in the definition of the name Shalem is a quality of the restoration or establishment of the kingdom of God. And need I mention, all that this name embodies that is representative of the city of Shalem is the same piece of real estate upon which Jerusalem sits. Consider now how much of what God had done and will do in fulfilling his kingdom and will be accomplished in Jerusalem. Now the name Jerusalem is divided between two root words, Yara and Shalem. We already know what Shalem means, but Yara means dual as related to the two hills on which Jerusalem sits. And it also means founded peacefully, to flow as water, to shoot as an arrow, to point out as if by aiming a finger, to teach. This word yara also means to cast, direct, inform, instruct, show, teacher, teaching, and through, as in all the way through. It's interesting too that the word Torah actually means to instruct also. So you put yara and shalem together as the Hebrew word for Jerusalem. And we have a picture of the intent of the Bible in its entirety of God's instructions and his teaching to mankind. The meaning of the name of Jerusalem reveals the very nature and character of the kingdom of God. The Bible, for the most part, centers largely in Jerusalem or is related to it somehow. And that is where this chapter picks up here in Revelation, in Jerusalem. So let me read chapter 11. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to hurt them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. 
and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake seven thousand people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. I'm going to pause in this place at the end of chapter 14 and continue chapter 15 in a different episode. So let me begin by explaining what's taking place here. John is given a measuring stick and is told to measure three things. The temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. What is the purpose of taking these measurements? Measuring the temple, the city. Well, the people, when you measure something in the Old Testament, it was done in a two very opposite ways. Ezekiel may come to mind for some of you. For Ezekiel, he followed a man with a measuring stick and recorded the details and measurements of the temple of God, as well as the people in the city. And that's in Ezekiel 40 to 48. Zechariah also saw a vision of a man who was to measure the city of Jerusalem. Zechariah 2 verses 1 through 5. So both Ezekiel and Zechariah are dealing with measurements, but their measurements were in dealing with the restoration of God's people. The other way that this figure is used, these measurements, is in respect to measuring a place and its people for destruction. Habakkuk gives us a beautiful picture of this in Habakkuk 3, verses 3 through 6. So is this chapter about a restored temple or a defied temple, ready for the abomination of desolation? Inside the outer wall of the temple complex was a large area called the Court of the Gentiles, to which anyone, even a non-Jew, had access. The Court of the Gentiles is the area from which actually Jesus drove out the money changers, if you remember that in the Gospels. Well, some years ago, archaeologists were digging in the temple ruins of Jerusalem, and they found a stone, a lump of limestone, actually, and there was lettering on it. And the lettering was picked out in red paint. And when they deciphered the lettering, it said, Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame if death ensues. What does that mean? Well, this was the stone in the temple of Jesus's day on the middle wall of partition between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews. And the death sentence was on any person, a Gentile, who came beyond that wall, or anybody who brought a Gentile beyond that wall. So there was a middle wall of separation, and anyone who was caught going past it, who was not a Jew, but who was a Gentile, would suffer death if need be. And that's why Paul was arrested. Do you remember that? He was falsely accused of having brought a Gentile past that warning notice. 
Though he hadn't done it physically, he did do it spiritually. And that's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2.14 about Jesus. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down that wall of hostility that separated us. That's what that's all about. So through Christ, that wall is torn down and we can now come boldly to his throne of grace. But in this picture, the separation is still there. A place for Gentiles, non-believers. They do not have access to the Holy of Holies, which of course is Christ. But they do have access to the Holy City, this outer area. And this is where the treading comes in. If you remember in Jesus' discourses that we've been talking about in subsequent episodes, uh, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, well, in Luke 21, verse 24, Jesus' discourse on the end times, he says, And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, what does Revelation 11 say? But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So we know that Jerusalem is going to be trampled by the Gentiles, the holy city. Gentiles are still ruling Jerusalem even during the seven-year tribulation period. And this will not change until Christ returns. In short, the times of the Gentiles refers to the period in which Gentiles, which means the nations or those who are non-Jews, have dominion over the world and actually over the holy city. And I'll explain this more in a minute. But this began between the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and Jesus' second coming. We are currently living in the times of the Gentiles. Let me explain. In 586 BC, Babylon conquered Jerusalem, and that was the start. This is when they destroyed the temple. 538 to 142, the Persian and Hellenistic rule. He had Alexander the Great, and he had the Hellenistic rule. This was also the period of time where he had the Maccabean revolt. This is the story of Hanukkah. But this is also where Jews, they had Jewish independence from 129 to 63 under Hasmonean. Then you had the Roman Empire that was over Israel from 63 to 313 BCE. Then you had the Byzantines rule from 313 to 636 BCE. Then you had the Arab rule from 636 to 1099 And on site of the first and second temples in Jerusalem, this was the period of time when the Dome of the Rock was built by the Caliph Abdu'l-Malik. And from 1099 to 1291, then you had the Crusader domination, the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem. From 1291 to 1516, you had the Mamluks. From 1517 to 1917, you had the Ottomans. From 1918 to 1948, you had the British rule. But in 1948, the state of Israel was reborn. You know, that whole doctrine of the church replacing Israel was big for a period of time, only in the 18th, 19th century, because Israel was no more. And so an easy explanation, 
on how to explain the prophecies that said Israel would be reborn was to basically say it was reborn through the church, but that's not true. That doctrine has been facing pushback ever since 1948 when Israel became a state again. So for over 2,000 years, Israel has been trampled by the Gentiles, exactly as the prophet said it would. Now that's something, isn't it? And this is how it's been until 1948, when through a miracle motion at the UN, came to the end, it came to the end of the British mandate over Israel, and that occurred on May 14, 1948, and the state of Israel was proclaimed on the same day. But guess what? The very next day, Israel was invaded by five Arab states. Now imagine, you're fresh off the boats, you're coming in from other countries, you don't have equipment or war machinery, nothing. Just leftovers from all of the empires who had been there before you. And now you're invaded by five neighboring Arab nations. It was called the War of Independence. And this is also when the Israel Defense Forces was established. And then one year later in 1949, you had the Armistice Agreements, and it was signed with Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. And Jerusalem was divided under Israeli and Jordanian rule. So Jerusalem was not still part of Israel. 1948 to 1952 began mass immigration to Israel, putting more prophetic scriptures in motion that people just couldn't explain. But God said he would bring his people back to the land, and he was and is still doing it. But one of the key years in Jewish history is 1967, marking what's called the Six-Day War. At that time, for the first time in nearly 2,000 years, the Jewish people regained control of the vital area of the old city of Jerusalem, fulfilling even more prophecy. But the full prophecy has not been fulfilled completely yet because the Jewish people did not take control, and that's where it still stands. They would have done so, but they did not, in order to keep peace with their neighbors. So the temple area is still occupied by a Muslim mosque. If you've ever wondered that today, let me explain. When you watch the news or if you travel to Israel, you notice that the police surrounding the Temple Mount, they're Israeli police. That's because Israel has governmental control of the Temple Mount. So protection and all of that. But the Muslims have religious control of the Temple Mount. So if you want to go to Israel and you want to visit the Temple Mount, you have to follow both sets of rules. And there are very strict rules to adhere by from both sides. And so prophecy is still yet to be fulfilled on this. Gentiles are still trampling the holy city. This prophecy will be fulfilled when the Jews will have complete control of the temple area once again, not just governmentally, but religiously. Therefore, Jerusalem has not yet been liber liberated from Gentile domination. Do you understand a little bit more about that? When Jerusalem is liberated from Gentiles, the events on God's calendar, friends, they are going to move quick. They are going to move swiftly per his own words. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles has come in. That means until the full number of Gentiles still yet to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior comes in. This is also why Israel has experienced a hardening in part to the gospel. Why? Until the full number of the Gentiles have come in. Then God will finish his work with Israel 
and remove the veil from their eyes to see their Messiah. And you may not understand all of this at the moment, but remember, Paul says in Romans 11, Israel is still part of God's plan. They are loved on account of the patriarchs. That's who God made covenant with. And that's the covenant we are grafted into. Listen to our Israel series. Which is why the need now for two supernatural witnesses to show up on the scene. Daniel records the abomination of desolation, right? This is when Satan begins his three and a half year period of complete control. But it's also the same time that two prophets from God receive power from on high for those same three and a half years. God is going to give power to two witnesses, his witnesses, to prophesy for 1,260 days, which equates to three and a half years or 42 months, which is a relatively short time, actually. And remember, that word prophecy here is to foretell, to divine. They will speak strongly of what's to come while being dressed in sackcloth. And that's something to note. So who are these two witnesses? Well, there's, there's some theories, there's some assumptions, but really that's all they are because honestly, no one truly knows. But let me at least share what some of these theories or assumptions are. Number one, some suggest that these two are Moses and Elijah. They are given power to turn waters into blood and to put plagues upon the earth. Well, that's what Moses experienced, right? And then power to shut heaven so no rain falls. Well, that's what Elijah did. So that's the first suggestion. There's also the suggestion that the two olive trees and the two lampstands that are standing before the Lord, right? This pulls in imagery from Zechariah 4, so I encourage you to please read that. But it's intriguing. Two olive trees represent a wild and natural olive tree of Romans 11. The natural olive tree being the Jews or Israel, and the wild olive tree represents Gentiles or Gentile believers, Christians. We as Christians are grafted into the natural tree. That's why Paul says the root supports us. We don't support the root. But either way, the point is we come together as one new tree, Jew and Gentile into one new man. The two lampstands also represent Jews and Israel and the church. Because Israel is called a light to the nations in Isaiah 49, 6. And believers are also called the light. Because we're filled with the light of Christ, we're called the light of the world while he's gone. Because he now lives in us through his spirit. That's why our bodies are also called lamps, right? So the two olive trees and lampstands are a picture of those examples in the Bible from both Old and New Testament coming together as the true church. To prophesy. Remember, he says you'll be hated for all for my namesake. So there's this assumption that the olive trees and the two lampstands are the two threads within Judaism and Christianity. And some reference this, like I said, as the true church, this remnant who is still following the Holy Scriptures as opposed to the false church, a church that is mixed with the world. And the true church will be given power to speak the word of God boldly, but eventually be killed for it. And then the last assumption is very simple. Looking at the scriptures plainly, they are just two unknown men sent by God to prophesy. 
So you can look at it multiple different ways. You can look at it from a spiritual angle. You can look at it from a practical angle. But pray about it. Because honestly, we really won't know who they are, I guess, until it truly happens. And where are these witnesses prophesying? Well, if you take this chapter literally and follow where John says that it is taking place, it appears to be in the holy city as indicated in verse 8, which we'll go into. But the curious thing is how they are dressed. They're dressed in sackcloth. Now in the Bible, when people clothed themselves in sackcloth and ashes, their hearts were in anguish. It represented mourning, many times through deep repentance when they recognized that they had disobeyed God. But sackcloth was also used in desperate times when they needed God's help and mercy, such as in the story of Esther with Mordecai. For the two witnesses to be dressed in sackcloth appears to represent something similar, perhaps a last-ditch effort appealing for people to hear the truth of God and for God to have mercy yet again. They were prophesying the future events that were coming, and through the symbolism of sackcloth, they were demonstrating the urgency of the hour, appealing to God as well. You know, God is still so merciful in sending two witnesses to prophesy to the people, isn't he? And he's given them 1,260 days to decide what to do, which tells us that the gospel is still available. And the mystery in all this is the power that these two witnesses will have. No one will be able to harm them or kill them during this three and a half years. And if they try, they will be killed, literally. Now the fire from the mouth of the witnesses refers to what most people believe as the power and effect of the word of God. Remember, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established, 2 Corinthians 13.1. The two witnesses will bear testimony of the truth and of the name of Jesus Christ to declare to the world that all are in need of salvation and that there is salvation only by grace through faith in the saving work of Christ crucified. And guess what? The whole world will hear this testimony. Technology will ensure that. People are recording everything now, right? Imagine when this takes place. When two men show up for three and a half years straight dressed in sackcloth with a fiery message that will dismantle every political correct, politically correct argument and narrative out there, right? The whole world is going to get an opportunity to hear the gospel. And they're going to get an opportunity to reflect on what these people are saying and have an opportunity to return to the Lord before it's too late. And God is not going to allow anything to interrupt his message to the world for three and a half years. Think about that. When they finish their testimony now, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So here we have in verse 7, the first mention of the beast in Revelation. We're going to cover the beast later, but this is the first mention of him. It doesn't say who he is in the verse. It just says that he is going to rise from the bottomless pit. And then he's going to overcome them and he's going to kill them. So when they finish their testimony, they finish the work of the Lord. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which it says, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So first, what did Sodom do? Well, Sodom was known for its lewdness and perverseness and sexuality. 
What was Egypt known for? It's idolatry. So spiritually, Israel is going to be embracing both during this time. But then he references Jerusalem when he says that this is the place also where our Lord was crucified. Keep in mind, our Lord was crucified in the old city. So there's a good chance these two witnesses will be prophesying in the streets of the old city. The other thing that I find interesting about that picture, just with Jesus and his crucifixion, death and resurrection, he was the last person to die and rise from the dead in Jerusalem until here. These two witnesses, when they die, after three and a half days, they too will come back to life and every eye will see it. Before that, the people will leave their dead bodies in the streets for three and a half days, not allowing them to be buried. In fact, they're going to celebrate. They're going to have parties. They're going to give gifts to each other because these two annoying men, right? They're done making them feel bad about their sin. They're done with them turning the waters into blood. They're done with the plagues, whatever it is that they have called down from heaven. They're going to celebrate their death. And so for three days, imagine, and the videos and everything that's going to come out on that, right? People are going to be recording that, sending it everywhere. But then three and a half days later, God is going to breathe his life back into them. And they stand on their feet. Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine the response? Well, he actually explains what happens. Great fear fell upon all who saw this. Uh, uh, you think? And then they hear a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And just like that, they ascend to heaven in a cloud, just like Jesus did in Acts chapter one. And their enemies saw it. Can you just imagine? And suddenly in that same hour, just like it was at Jesus's death, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed. But what happened? The rest who were left were afraid, and they gave glory to God. And that's what it's all about. Whatever it takes to bring the souls into the kingdom, the work of the witnesses was accomplished. Well, another incredible section of scripture for us to digest. I hope that this blessed you and gave you some things to think about. And we will continue in our next episode, kicking off with verse 15 of chapter 11. God bless you today.